welcome to the Energy Talk podcast. My name is Olubumi Olajide and welcome to the fourth episode in our eight-part series on distributed energy for people and the planet. This episode is produced in collaboration with Global SDG 7 Ops and the Energy Action Project. In this episode, we hear from two guests who talk about the important role that energy plays in enabling healthcare for off-grid communities. And before I hand over to the host of this episode, Marilyn Smith, I want to tell a quick story. I was born in a hospital without any electricity. For whatever reason that day, there was no backup power. And if my delivery was a bit late, the doctors would have had to perform C-section by candlelight. And you might be thinking this happened off-grid, but this is actually in the city of Lagos. This was almost 27 years ago, and although energy access in hospitals and healthcare centers in cities and developing countries has improved, when you go off-grid, it's pretty much the same story. A few weeks ago, I was able to visit an off-grid community and talked to the doctor and the nurses in the health center there. And many of the experiences that are shared by the guests of this episode are echoed by the medical staff of that healthcare facility. There is such a huge gap to be filled, and that's why the work that the guests will be talking about today is so important. And for me and for many other people in developing countries, it's very close to home. So I hope you learned something new from this episode, and I hope you take something away from it. If you do find something of value, please make sure to share with a friend or colleague. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening, and enjoy the episode. When you've grown up with energy at your fingertips, its sudden absence can be a bit of a gut punch. In 2015, the Enact team was filming a short documentary at the Ganta United Methodist Hospital, the second largest facility in Liberia. Having arrived mid-afternoon, we high-fived the soft light that gave form and texture to lab equipment, backlit the multicolored papers protruding from vertically arranged file folders, and helped define the dark features of both patients and health providers. By 7 p.m., the windows had gone ink black, as had most of the hallways and wards. We could still hear mothers wringing wet cloths into buckets as their babies wailed or whimpered from fever, or simply the heat of the day. At 9 p.m., a silence settled across the space and the last of the lights went out. The background hum of the early evening, we realized, belonged to a pair of diesel generators out back. From now until sunrise, unless an emergency warranted restarting the generators, doctors and nurses would work by the light of their own cell phones. Patients and their families would eat using torches, then try to sleep with no help from fans. Sometime after midnight, another baby was born into this darkness. Every month, administrators face the difficult choice of what to pay first. Sky-high diesel bills or staff salaries? Fast forward to 2020 and 2021. The COVID-19 pandemic filled major hospitals with patients who needed a lot of energy-intense equipment 24-7 and had innovators scrambling to develop devices that would keep millions of vaccine doses at minus 70 degrees Celsius during global transport and distribution. It goes without saying that energy played a major role in survival rates. 
With that, this podcast series transitions to two episodes on the energy and health nexus. As with the first episode and the opener for energy and agriculture, we start with a discussion that aims to bridge the gap between grassroots solutions and high-level policy. Bringing the first perspective is Rashida Misra, Associate Director of Knowledge and Advocacy with Selco Foundation in India. In turn, we'll hear from Heather Adair-Rohani, Acting Head of Air Quality, Energy and Health at the World Health Organization, or WHO. Rashida, I'd like to start with something you mentioned offline about how the COVID-19 pandemic changed people's thinking in India. I would say one of the only silver linings that we saw during COVID that emerged was that health practitioners started feeling the connect a lot more strongly. Second wave in COVID, I think it's well known that in India, it was absolutely horrible the way that it impacted even some of the remote geographies. And while that was happening, we were really going about amping up the health infrastructure. We were saying we need more diagnostics to happen. We need labs, we need immunization, and more importantly, we need ICUs. And at that point of time, when oxygen concentrators were being donated, ventilators were being donated, they were not functioning because you didn't have energy in these facilities. Our health practitioner at that point of time told us that I have my concentrators here, I have my ICU facility here, I have my doctors here as well. But if there is a power cut for five seconds and I have someone running down to switch on the generator in that time, it costs me all the 10 patients who are there in the ICU right now. And that was the time when the health sector realized that energy was their challenge. If that results in any death, in anything happening to the patients, they are accountable. They are on the front page of the newspaper. And I think earlier when we used to go often and have these discussions, the health practitioners would say, you know, energy is energy department. And we used to be like, really? But it's not, right? And I think what COVID did was really bring this connect forward. And a lot of the health state departments, they started saying that when we're looking at expanding our health facilities, the same way that our guidelines right now say that district hospitals need to have generators as a mandatory, we also need to plan for cleaner sources of energy for that kind of reliability to emerge. And I think that basically resulted in very strong partnerships and very strong champions emerging at the state level in the country who said that here on whatever I decide as a public health infrastructure, I need to look at energy very consciously as part of that infrastructure itself. The COVID-19 pandemic triggered a rapid response in regard to energy for urgent health care. Experts anticipate that the climate crisis will lead to widespread impacts in both personal and public health that cannot be vaccinated away. And rather than a short, massive spike for demand in health services, we will see steady growth. Energy in itself is a very important problem for the world globally. 2.3 billion people in this world lack access to clean cooking in the home. Basic clean fuels and technology to prepare a simple meal. The problem is even further exacerbated if you consider those energy needs for home heating and lighting, etc. Actual lack of energy access in the home, this lack of clean cooking is also a, itself a source of household air pollution. And this again is exacerbated because this lack of energy also leads to drudgery in the home and time loss. And therefore, they're impacting even further the health and well being of those individuals living in these homes without access to, to clean and reliable energy sources in the home for basic energy needs. Heather, I want to reinforce the data point you just used. 
2.3 billion people, or about 25% of the global population, still cook with wood or other biomass, resulting in poor personal health. In the global north, we've become energy gluttons, relying on some form of it virtually every minute of every day. And a large portion of it still comes from dirty fuels. What does that mean for our public health? And in both contexts, what does it mean for both personal and public health? There's huge, huge connections between energy and just the environmental and social determinants of health. 99% of the world's population lives above WHO standards for clean air. This air pollution is caused from the inefficient use of energy and the use of polluting fuels and technology, which is also a huge source of climate change. Of course, this creates a vicious cycle because the climate change again leads to further ill health. So we have people, many people exposed um, and at a greater risk for non-communicable diseases and even communicable diseases like pneumonia due to exposure to air pollution caused by inefficiencies in energy, further exposed to greater risk due to climate vulnerabilities because of you know, heat stress, we have droughts, we have floods and these types of things. So it is this vicious cycle and a large source of it is the energy use and how we use it in our communities and society. How is it affecting human health? This whole epidemiological shift we're seeing in terms of the disease that we're experiencing across the world for this non-communicable chronic diseases. So we are seeing large amounts of stroke, heart disease, aspects within low and middle income populations that wasn't there before. And a lot of this is actually due to exposure to air pollution and often in specifically household air pollution. I believe chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, household air pollution is the first or second leading cause of COPD in women in low and middle income countries. And these women typically don't have the other risk factors like smoking or ill diet, it's often the household air pollution is really the cause and source of this. And we're estimating around 3.2 million people per year are dying in low and middle income countries from exposure to household air pollution. Rashida, what does Selco Foundation see on the ground when working with vulnerable communities across India? How are people using energy? What sources are they relying on? And how is it affecting them and their communities? To add to a lot of the things that Heather was already saying, I think two things that she pointed out very clearly. One was temperature stresses, so specifically the heat stress and the cold stress. And then the other aspect was air pollution. I think often when we look at both of these aspects, we say heat stress for outdoor workers or heat stress generally when we are at home with temperatures rising, air pollution when we're cooking, air pollution because of traffic. But Actually, like people experience these things very differently on the ground, both as short-term effects as well as long-term effects. So, for example, a lot of the entrepreneurs that we work with are home-based entrepreneurs. They're doing food processing. They are street vendors who are primarily using their daytime to cook so that they can get out on the streets and sell that food in the evening. So they have they're living in tin sheet houses in slums or in rural areas because that's a representation of the income status or the economic status that they represent. But also at the same time, they're cooking the whole day long. So you can imagine it as sitting inside an oven because the tin sheet is literally capturing all the heat and then they're cooking. So they're also generating heat inside, sometimes maybe using as coal and other ways of using cooking fuel as well, which is also creating pollution. So you actually have many of these communities experiencing heat stress 
even at a time when outside temperatures are just about 36 degrees Celsius, because it's a five degree difference sometimes internally, just because of that. We have even communities, for example, who say that I start working at 2 a.m. and I finish working at 8 a.m. because it's nighttime. And that's the only time when it's possible for me to work. So lives and livelihood, as you rightly said, or health and livelihood, that means is so interconnected, right? Because in a way, your number of productive years, your health in the long term is getting impacted by the way that you are facing heat stress, as well as the way that you are just exposed to air pollution because of the kind of cooking that you have to do for your livelihood itself. Are you seeing the changing trends and disease patterns that Heather referred to? And seeing the link between energy and health? Traditionally, we have focused on keeping an eye on immunization rates, keeping an eye on maternal mortality rates, infant mortality rates, right? But there are new lifestyle diseases which are even there in rural areas. I think there is a misnomer that you have diabetes, hypertension, and these kind of diseases only in urban areas. These are rural diseases these days because of the way nutrition and food security is changing in these communities. What that basically means is that we change the way of delivery of health, right? So while we are folks who are looking at energy itself, to understand the health gap itself, you really need to speak to health practitioners. And I think one of the things as soon as you speak to them emerges is there are new disease patterns or disease trends which are emerging, right? The priority now is lifestyle change, which is so much of monitoring, which is such a slow movement, right? It's not a one-time thing, which means that imagine now everything that I was saying earlier of people having a hard time accessing health facilities, it's going to be even more impossible now. So you diagnose someone with diabetes, but you are not able to track it regularly. You're not able to monitor it regularly. You're not able to handhold the person regularly. Because for the person who is diagnosed to access that um, service now, that lifelong service now, is high transaction costs. That basically results over a period of time in me having life-threatening diseases, big operations, which I can't take up, which are the costs that I can't take up. So what we've seen is actually that when we start looking at these aspects, the whole decentralization aspect becomes really critical. Heather, I mentioned in my introduction the shock of being in the second largest hospital in Liberia and seeing nurses use the torches on their own mobile phones to do nighttime injections. Does the WHO have any sense of how common that is? We had a new report that came out where we estimated around 1 billion people around the world lack access to healthcare facilities with reliable electricity. And if you can imagine the importance of having an electricity power supply when you go to get basic healthcare services, I mean, these are facilities, they're not even having lighting from which to, to provide simple care. And so often these health facilities that have no access in dire sources, they sometimes have to rely on diesel generators, which again contributes to air pollution, and which then again contributes to our climate degradation that we see around the world. What has Selco Foundation learned from engaging with such clinics, Rashida? One aspect becomes, you know, are we able to actually deliver quality health services? One, is the right services being delivered? And two, even if it's being delivered, is it reliable? Because reliability is going to go down if my equipments are not working, if I can't do an operation, if I don't have my lab tests. The second aspect is we say that, you know, it's very hard for our frontline health workers to be working out of remote areas 
their morale is just down because you don't have the light on you you don't have the fan on you don't have water so you don't have water in the toilets for your own self forget everything else so the morale goes down because of that but at the same time would we trust a hospital if it does not have energy you will not trust a hospital which does not have energy right if you have to if you are ill you just have basic fever but you have to walk for even 15 minutes to get to the health facility you will not make that decision you will take a medicine that is available to you in your medicine drawer but in the developing country context as heather very rightly pointed out i think the link between energy and health also comes in because you're not just looking at an energy gap being filled in you're saying i need to look at a health gap being filled in but i need to do it in a manner that it doesn't actually result in further climate stresses further climate emissions and i think that's where we also see problem statements emerging from the ground very linked to challenges in health service delivery itself but it's all linked to climate and it's all linked to energy even at the ground level talking about livelihood and health separately in silos just do not make sense because you on one hand you're talking about increasing people's incomes but then you're asking them to spend that in actually accessing healthcare in their travel costs in their transaction costs services or medical treatments for things that that happened because of bad life practices and exposure to heat stress etc so it's very intertwined as you rightly mentioned health services itself in the developing countries there's an opportunity to rethink of the way that we're delivering it that kind of balances the need as well as the impact of energy on climate the point of the problem statement emerging is what is the requirement for health services delivery and then from there on who are the people and what are their challenges in doing that and from there actually coming up with solutions which are of course energy driven but very much responding to the needs that are coming from the ground In the last episode of this series, the high value of energy for communication in smallhold farming came up. How can communication improve healthcare and ultimately both personal and public health? We were working with someone to actually develop health posts, like models of health posts, which can be located in hamlets, which have just about 300 to 500 households, which actually have telediagnostics, right? So you are basically saying that you have specialized doctors which are in main health facilities but you have a teleconsultation service but in addition to that you have telediagnostics which is possible so i'm able to monitor basic sugar levels basic blood pressure that i need to check just additional basic diagnostics that i'm able to actually decentralize without allocating the specialized doctors costs as well and that basically means that in a tribal village you have energy you have internet you have the telediagnostic equipment and you're able to give all these services on a regular basis with someone doing minimal travel from their side air pollution energy use is really a collective problem that requires collective action and you really need a variety of stakeholders working from the health sector, the energy sector, the transport sector, the public facilities, institutions, all these different people working at the local level, the regional level, all together in a different way. And so the more that we can harmonize in our efforts, the more we are going to advance and make progress towards truly global challenges that we really share and that we all really need to take action to. We try really hard at WHO to do that and engage various actors like 
Selco has been a great partner in the fact that we can been able to really take a lot of the work and experiences they have on the ground, share those experiences, share those learning with other countries and other organizations working on the ground. Rashida, the obvious question then is, what has Selco Foundation been working on for practical solutions? I think immunization is something that we're all so familiar with COVID as well. But you have a core chain, you have something where you're storing vaccines, but then you also need to take vaccines to the people. And when you start taking vaccines to the people, the traditional way to go about it is that you have an ice box. You have a box lined with ice packs, you have vaccines kept in it, and there are women or, you know, auxiliary midwives going into the communities, carrying these ice packs with them and giving the vaccines. What does this mean in terms of heat stress rising? Right? You cannot travel for more than three to four hours because the ice melts now in the summer season. Right? So when you are talking about remote areas, you're talking about you having the staff to actually conduct these immunizations, but you don't have the technology anymore. Energy is not portable. Right? Again, what we actually have been working on is active vaccine carriers. So they can be charged by solar. They can be charged even if it's needed out of the nurses or the community health workers' homes as well, right? And you have almost like ice packs, same, same boxes, same capacity, but they have an inbuilt battery. You're able to use it for 12 hours. You can go into really remote areas. You don't have to make sure that you travel for one and a half hours, finish quickly, and then come back. You know, that's not the thing that you're looking at. It not only, again, gives confidence, improves well-being of the frontline health worker, but it also actually ensures that the vaccine is not going to get spoiled just because my bus got delayed while coming back to the health facility and the vaccine gets spoiled, right? So it brings in a certain amount of efficiency in the overall health facility or the public health infrastructure itself. But it also gives confidence to people who are really holding this health infrastructure together to do their job in the way that they're supposed to and the way that they want to as well. Heather, you brought up the health impacts of cooking with biomass when we first started talking. Well, the kinds of innovation Selco Foundation excels at, in terms of electrifying and providing highly efficient equipment for health clinics, is vital to treating disease. It doesn't get to the root problem. So I want to come back to the clean cooking challenge and what WHO and others are doing in this area. There are some parallels with the electrification aspects and particularly in healthcare facilities, but there are definitely some greater challenges, I would say, in terms of achieving clean cooking and the idea of achieving universal clean cooking access by 2030 as put forth by the SDGs. We've been cooking as humans forever, right? And we have particular behaviors that we're used to in different practices. Whereas electrification, you kind of, you, you have your systems and we know when electricity is the output. Whereas clean cooking, you have a variety of fuels and technologies that you need to have available and that are scalable. We can't necessarily wait for decades to get green electricity for cooking, which is very power intensive, energy intensive to various you know, remote areas in the mountains. So I think one of the challenges and fact of adopting clean cooking is shifting the behavior and the people to understand and appreciate the importance of clean cooking in their life. They can save the cost of health, although that's typically not what drives the individual because they've been cooking like this for generations and generations, why all of a sudden it would it be a risk for their health? So this is one thing, but they, you know, the time savings and these things can drive the adoption of clean cooking. In episode three of this series, one of the points that came up was the role of policy 
in making sure that people have access to both clean energy and efficient equipment, which I know is also a challenge in the clean cook stove space. How is the WHO tackling this? In terms of health, there was always a challenge with biomass cooking is we didn't know what clean and what was improved enough to protect health. And now the health community has come in and WHO has developed normative guidelines that actually give specific emission rate targets that really define what can be considered clean fuels and technology for health, which therefore can drive the innovation of those stove designers that are developing these technologies to really develop ones that meet emission levels that will protect health and actually ultimately protect the environment. So setting those technical recommendations, I think it is critical to those people developing stoves and then also to the policymakers selecting them, which, you know, is a little bit different than we therefore need to figure out some, a variety of different solutions that are available for different contexts and different geographies and different resources. And so driving policymakers to understand what are the variety of claim solutions and options available is critical because we need to make a variety available for depending upon what the local infrastructure is, what's the local affordability aspects, et cetera, to really push to clean cooking and to drive the families to adopt it. So there's different challenges and there's different ways and techniques that we're trying to attract them. And some of that is really speaking to the community to understand what are the benefits for them, whether that's health, time, affordability, and also speaking to the policymakers and innovators as to what is it that we need to really achieve to protect health. Household air pollution itself is the one of the leading global leading causes of global black carbon, which is one of the short-lived climate pollutants that we're really experiencing climate change from today. So really tackling clean cooking is tackling mitigating climate change as well. So reducing those emissions from clean cooking is protecting our climate as well. And accordingly, the lot of benefits that we can receive by ensuring access to clean and sustainable energy for homes and healthcare facilities and communities more broadly to help not only the health and well-being of the individual, but also the health and well-being of our environment. From other reporting I've done in the past, I'm aware that lack of data on fuels used at the household level and on individual health is a chronic problem in convincing governments to take action on clean cooking. How are the WHO and others addressing this gap? This is a really good question because that's what drives a lot of the clean cooking work and speaks to people, right? The number of deaths to household air pollution exposure and the same thing in somewhat terms of electrification of healthcare facilities. One billion people without access to reliable electricity is an important number that people can grasp onto. We need to there transfer to the next level, which would be what is the impact on service delivery and can we quantify that? And we want to start doing that as we're rolling out more projects in the ground to get a good baseline of, okay, what is the kind of healthcare service delivery that you're doing now? And how has that changed with the actual particular electrification system installed? I believe Selco does some of this more, and we're trying to create this a more harmonized approach that all countries can adopt as they're trying to do this and actually quantifying those impacts. Because it's not just the disease that's being treated, but this is also health and cost savings as well, which can also really drive the policy as well. So it's important not only to speak to the community about how important this is to protecting your health and how you can avoid and prevent disease and ill health and by numbers and quantifying electrification and the uptake of service, but it's also this idea of what savings can this actually provide for the government and for the community more broadly. It's important for policymakers and to drive policymakers to show what's working and that isn't working. So we at WHO are very 
into data. And we actually have worked hard to really leverage the data and under our understanding of collecting this information to have this communication war with the energy sector. And WNGO itself is the custodial agency for three SDGs that can be connected to energy. One is the SDG on energy access, SDG 7, where clean cooking is really defined by WHO guidelines. Like I said, we didn't have a, a definition of clean until these guidelines. Now we've basically held the community accountable to achieve this health target. And we, as therefore, are monitoring this and produce regular estimates for every country broken down by urban and rural every year based on health surveys and things. We're also developing standardized questions to be used in different communities and different settings, whether that's national setting, local settings or projects to actually understand what is the energy access situation in households and how can that be translated, asking specific questions about health impacts as well in terms of coughing and other kind of symptoms that could be experienced. I know not necessarily diagnosed by a doctor, but at least some kind of ad hoc approach to getting a better sense of the health impacts at the community level. So we monitor that SDG 7. We also monitor outdoor air quality in, in cities and rural. And then we combine those two estimates that clean cooking as an aspect for household air pollution, as well as ambient air pollution, combine those to actually monitor the SDG 3 around the joint effects of household and ambient air pollution. And these numbers are really what are driving and people can relate to. And whether that's at the local country level, regional level, or global level. So we really find the data to produce and to tell them what's working and what isn't working is better it is really an important lever. And that is really something that we're working with other partners to, to grab it, to really have a global approach like the World Bank and other organizations. Where do organizations like Selco Foundation come into this, Rashida? I think WHO, and especially like the way that Heather has been explaining it as well, right, is just such a good example of a global entity having a very cross-sectional kind of outlook to what this health and energy kind of connection looks like. We at Selcoke see it as us playing that balancing role between that top-down narrative and the ground-up solutions that are coming up. So there is the whole aspect of how do you create that evidence on the need or the gap, which is, of course, like the way that like every example that Heather took was ground, right? It was coming from the people who are facing those challenges. But then how do you really quantify it and tell that narrative in a way that really inspires change at that highest level, highest level of decision-making, highest level of, of target-making, right? Our highest level of funding allocations. But then in addition to that, once... The need is identified. You need evidence around solution. You need evidence around muscle on the ground, as we like to say, right? Even if a solution is rolled out, even if a policy is rolled out, is there capacity on the ground to actually implement? Because that's where often the gaps lies. And I think what we do and the kind of conversations that we have with WHO is also saying, what do we customize and what do we standardize, right? In a manner that it gets ownership of the same problem statement across different levels. Ownership, why? Because ownership is going to help in the right decision-making and ownership is going to result in that ecosystem which is going to get efficient solutions on the ground. Now, across the project timeline, like our understanding is that every aspect of a program implementation has this balance of standardization and customization. We opened by hearing you speak, Rashida, about how COVID-19 made people in India realize the need to embed energy into healthcare system policy and planning. What do you see changing as a result? In India, 
know, when I can speak in more detail, is you have each health facility identified as certain services need to be mandatory, certain services need to be desirable, right? You have a very beautiful policy like that, but then how does the state or how does the local ground person actually identify what kind of mix of services do they offer? You know, what kind of assessment capacity do they need to be able to take that calls? Right, if you're looking at procurement, I need something as simple as a solar energy system for my health facility. Right, yes, there are standards top down, but there are still certain practices that I need to follow at the ground level to select that entity who is going to be local, who is going to have the right supply chains, who will be able to reach my health facilities within 24 hours and service it. That's the due diligence that I need to do. But the standards need to come from top down. And it's similar. It's similar for financing, similar for operations and maintenance, similar for monitoring as well. And I think as practitioners, anyone who's been on the ground, they know that this balance needs to be done. And this balance will only come in if there is collaboration that is actively being you know, seen as, as part of day-to-day, -day, where we're aligned on a vision, but then we're trying to see what's the best way to roll it out with ownership across. I would say not just like Circle Foundation, but a partnership of Circle Foundation and WHO is where the partnership comes together, then you're actually able to facilitate that top-down and bottom-up approach to happen. But the main thing I feel is always that if you're aligned on the vision, then it's, it becomes easier to say, let's just move ahead towards that. And is India moving ahead? Or has the call to action been dropped now that the pandemic is largely passed? In just the past two years, we've done about 3,000 health facilities, which are all powered by solar. When I'm saying powered by solar, it's sometimes under-representing the vision that some of these health state champions have come up with. They've used this whole program to actually upgrade the health facilities as well. Places where labor delivery was not possible earlier, actually having labor rooms, which are fully equipped with energy-efficient equipments powered by solar. Every example that I was giving of immunization comes from experiences with the state health practitioners, not just powering the cold chain, but actually having active vaccine carriers, which have the batteries, which can be powered in a more decentralized way, kind of strengthening the immunization chain as well. Now we are on a target of really proving out this model at scale. We have an aim to look at powering of 25,000 health facilities in the next three years. So by December 2026, it's only about 10% of the total health facilities that are there in the country. But the idea is to really use this as a pilot and showcase on how we can use energy as a catalyst to redesign the health system itself, the public health system itself. And what that means is not just questioning the services that are there, the quality of it, the reliability of it, but also ensuring that there is institutionalization, which basically means that this project doesn't end as a project, but there are systems of training, there are systems of capacity building, there are systems of ownership and maintenance, and there are systems of upgradation which are also set up in the health sector or health departments, particularly in, in India, which are able to say that from here onwards, whichever health facility comes up, will consciously consider solar powering as one of the options as a new way of delivering energy or a new way of consuming energy as well. Heather, as a wrap-up point, would you like to say anything else about what is progressing at the international policy level 
Oh, sure. And this, this report, it came out and we launched it in January 2023 at the International Renewable Energy Association Agency's meeting, annual meeting. And it's a joint report with the World Bank, IRENA itself, International Renewable Energy Agency, as well as Sustainable Energy for All and WHO. We co-authored it and it basically goes through the environment, the enabling environment necessary for healthcare facility electrification, providing some of the challenges and important aspects that need to be addressed as you or as we plan to scale up a healthcare facility electrification and also provide the biggest the numbers again in an aggregate level. This is the first time that we actually have pulled various estimates across the lack of electricity access and reliable electricity healthcare facilities globally for a long time. And it's one of the first times this has been done, but we're, we're working on it. This whole database, big launch of the report in January, which we're now going to be populating regularly, and we hope to eventually take this to further indicators. And on the ground, Rashida? We really feel that, you know, if we just do it ourselves as CELCO, we implement it with the states, it will be actually a lost opportunity. Uh, we have WHO already here, who we're so thankful for, because they're able to take the message forward much more than we can. But whether it's technology innovators, whether it's researchers, whether it's health economists who want to actually use our base of 25,000 health facilities to create the right evidence, pilot new ideas, pilot new things. We're really looking for collaborators who can make this program a lot more than what we have imagined right now. The push to electrify and equip 25,000 clinics across 12 states in India over the next three years speaks to the radical change that can be achieved quickly when innovators and international organizations engage with the decision makers in policy and finance, and when socioeconomic costs and benefits are properly accounted for in energy and health planning. Thanks very much to Heather Adair Rohani of the WHO and Rashida Misra of Selco Foundation for these insights into the scope of the challenge ahead in the Global South and the reassurance that progress is advancing on several interconnected levels. In our second episode on the energy and health nexus, we'll hear from Sweta Narayan, an environmental health expert with the NGO Healthcare Without Harm, and Sir Ramkumar, Joint Secretary of the Health and Family Welfare Department for the Indian state of Meghalaya. If you're keen to see the short documentary film I mentioned in my intro, go to the INACT website www.en-act.org and click on Features, then on Films. To learn more about the wide range of activity underway to improve energy access, visit the website of the Global SDG 7 Hubs. Search the Energy Talk on your favorite platform to hear past episodes of this podcast series. The opener examines the big picture of building up ecosystems to roll out local technologies at scales that deliver global change. Episodes two and three investigate how energy for agriculture can transform the lives of smallhold farmers. And find us here every second week on The Energy Talk. For The Energy Action Project, I'm Marilyn Smith.